Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Remember, the class was about fortifying our faith. And what we tried to do in this class was to look at some trends and some questions and try to build a case for the evidence that will help us sustain ourselves and our faith. We started off by looking at faith and reason. Then we shifted and we took a look in grave detail, if you remember, at the question, has the Bible been corrupted? And hopefully you learned something out of that and that helped you with that question. Then we took a look at the problem of evil and we mentioned pain and suffering and we concluded that the problem of evil is actually a good witness to the existence of God as opposed to having it be something that trips us up in our faith in God and his existence. Then we took a look uh, at faith and science, and that was done by Tom the past three weeks. And so tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to shift gears. We've got two more weeks, and we're going to let Ben talk to us about being a New Testament Christian in the 21st century. And it is, as you know, um, an interesting topic. It's also an important one because we know that Christianity is under attack. It always has been, but it seems like it's always under attack and even more. And so he's going to address some things that I think are going to really interest you and point out some things that happened in today's society that in past we just haven't had to deal with in this country. So I think you'll enjoy it. And of course, you know that Ben's an excellent teacher as well. So, and we do realize that with this particular topic the whole, as a whole, there is fatigue. And so we're going to conclude it after Ben's uh, two weeks and give you a break and we're going to go back to normal programming. Uh, so I just wanted to get up there and say that, and you're probably breathing a sigh of relief. But by the time Ben finishes, you'll probably be going, I want more, I want more, because Ben's so good. So anyway, turn it over to Ben. Thank you. All right, good evening. Um, as, as Mark mentioned, I'm going to talk not just about being a Christian in the 21st century, but more so kind of looking at the cultural aspect of things. And now, granted, you could spend, I mean, you could spend a whole quarter talking about culture and, and, and how it affects our daily lives, how it affects our Christianity. What I want to try to do over the next two weeks tonight, I want to look at certain things within our culture that, that we see much more prevalent today. And at the same time, I mean, it is a Bible class after all, look at what the Bible has to say about some of those things, and, and I'll dive into, there's an obvious reason for that, but I'll dive into some other reasons for it momentarily. And then, Lord willing, next week, my plan is to see how, or talk about, rather, how the, the culture that we live in today um, affects our worship a little bit, affects our ultimate goal of, of striving for heaven, and so that's the, the plan for next week. So tonight, kind of what I want to begin with, I guess, and what I should say at the outset, is this is not necessarily a lament, this is not a sky is falling type of lesson, that's not what I'm trying to do here. Uh, Mark brought up just then when he was inter- doing an introduction there for the night, Christianity indeed is under attack, but it always has been. It always has been. Uh, That's not something that's new in any way, shape, or form. Our lives should be a little bit uncomfortable because, 
And I, I made this point to someone the other day. You're, you're most comfortable at home, if you think about it. That's where you're most comfortable. That's where you put your sweatpants on and you put your feet up. You're comfortable at home. And as Christians, we claim that this world is not our home. Therefore, we shouldn't be most comfortable here. And so Christianity, yes, is it under attack? Of course it is. Has it always been under attack? Yes. Are we, and I think we need to be careful sometimes with how we describe it of, you know, Christianity, Christianity is under attack in unprecedented ways. Well, not necessarily. I mean, let's read through the New Testament. Let's look at the first century Christians. They were much more concerned with being killed than they were canceled, which is more of our bigger concern today. Now, that's a concern nonetheless. that We should be able to express our faith and do the things that we want to, but I think we need to be leery sometimes with how we go about saying these things. That being said, what are we facing? It's important to note that. Now, you could answer this in a variety of different ways. What are we facing? What is the biggest kind of cultural issue that we face? And to me, and I'll go ahead and tell you from the outset, I've taken in over the past few months a fire hose of information. It was difficult for me at times when I was trying to set up and outline this lesson how to get all of the things that are in my head to come out succinctly to make it make sense. It would be great if we could just sit here and, and talk back and forth per se and we could have a conversation, but that would require you to know what I want you to ask me, and that would be a little bit more difficult. So I hope that the best I can that we're going to make this flow as well as we can when we look at the culture. But one of the things that I was reading, and, I, and this is kind of the, the, head, the segue into what I want to talk about tonight, our biggest cultural issue, the thing that affects the culture ultimately in today's 21st century time period, and that we have to be aware of, and it affects the variety of different things, is this concept of the rise and triumph of the human self. Right? To, to tell you the title of a book by a gentleman by the name of Carl Truman, that's the title of the book. It's self-titled that, The Rise and Triumph of the Human Self. And when you think about it, all man's sin really comes from the self, the desire to please the self. And we, we've seen this more, I think, in the last 10, 20 years than we have in generations prior. This concept of, and, and Keith has made mention of this in classes before, of, of this era that we live in of post-truth. And that may sound strange. You know, you have a conversation with someone randomly, what is post-truth? Okay, you can Google it. I did. You will get a definition. Okay, if you Google post-truth, if you put it in your Google machine, it's going to give you this exact definition. Relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion that appeals to emotion and personal belief. There's another word, uh, a, a $3 word, if you will, a bit of a fancier word, uh, a Scottish philosopher by the name of Alasdair MacIntyre coined it, and it is emotivism. Emotivism, as he describes it in his book, After Virtue, says the doctrine that all evaluative judgments, and more specifically, all moral judgments, are nothing but expressions of preference, expressions of attitude or feeling, insofar as they are moral or evaluative in character. All right, so what does all that mean? I promise that's the last big word I'm going to say that you don't, perhaps don't understand. What does all that mean? All right, within our culture today... We have moved towards feelings and emotions as our guide. They tell us what is right and what is wrong. And we see that permeate into religious studies as well. 
There was another book, and I promise I'm not just going to cite books to you all night long. But there was one written in 1997, so I mean, this is a good while ago. The first one was. The guy, I think, has written three series since then. Um, Donald Neil Walsh, or Neil Donald Walsh, I'm sorry. The book that he wrote was called Conversations with God. 1997, this is part one. And in this book, what he says he did, self-proclaimed, was that he sit down? He sat down one time to write a letter to God, to talk to Him, which is fantastic. Perhaps he was writing a prayer of some kind. Great. And after he finished his written prayer, just all these questions that he had, all these things that he just, I need answers. He set his pen down, and lo and behold, it started moving, and it started responding to all of his questions. And as he puts it in his introduction, and I'll admit I didn't finish the book. But as he puts it there in his introduction, God responded. And the remainder of that book, and he's written three volumes of it now, is the conversation that he and God had with one another. He would write, and then God would write back. And he says here in the introduction, to read you the exact quote, this is God's response according to him, according to the author. (laughs) First, Let's exchange the word talk with the word communicate. It's a much better word, a much fuller, more accurate one. When we try to speak to each other, me and you, you and me, we're immediately constricted by the unbelievable limitation of words. For this reason, I do not communicate by words alone. In fact, rarely do I do so. My most common form of communication is through feelings. Feeling, he says, he says, God says, is the language of the soul. If you want to know what's true for you about something, look for how you're feeling about it. Okay, That is the era of post-truth. That is the era of emotivism. Feelings are God. What feels right is right. Our culture in the 21st century world in which we live will tell us that is correct. What feels right is right. Now, we know, and we should know, and we have to remember, because sometimes it's easy to get caught up in that. We're emotional people. We're emotional creatures. We were made that way by God. To be emotional beings, we feel things on a variety of different levels. But emotions are not always predicated on the truth. And we know that. Perhaps the greatest example I've seen of this, and I've mentioned it before in previous classes, you may have heard me say it or read it yourself. In the book Muscle and Shovel, he goes to point to that. And he says this. He says, let's say that you were on a vacation. And I call you up while you're down on vacation and I say, hey, you need to hurry home because your house has burned down. And we hang up. Well, what are your immediate feelings? What, you're upset? You're frustrated? You're confused? You have so many questions? So many rush of what? Emotions through you. And you load up the car and you pack up all your stuff and you drive as fast as you can through the night to get all the way home and you turn onto your street and there stands your house. Not burned, untouched, not charred even in the slightest. Now, all those emotions that you felt when you first heard the news, were those emotions real? They were every bit of real. Real emotions. Were they predicated on the truth or were they predicated on a lie? Well, they were predicated on a lie. It doesn't mean the emotions weren't real. They're very real. Just because we feel something doesn't mean it's right. But we see people use this as a guide not only for the decisions that they make within the world, but the decisions that they make with where they go to worship, with how they act, with the things that they agree and disagree with. And we'll look at some of those tonight. 
We see there was a gentleman, um, forget, the, forget the name now. Again, I promise you I'm not just going to quote books to you all night. But the book was never enough. It had nothing to do with anything religious whatsoever. It was a former Navy SEAL, and it was a leadership-type book. I like to read those things every now and then. It was called Never Enough. And in it, he says that the little motto that they used for their SEAL team, I suppose, and I like this because I could use it for the sports teams that I coach, was the, the hierarchy of their thinking was team, teammate, self. So they said that's how they operate. You think about your team first, and then your teammate, and then yourself. As a Christian... And I try to apply that to our own Christianity here. Our hierarchy of thinking should be God, church, self. The first question I ask is, is this pleasing to God? The second question I ask is, will it bring reproach upon the church? And you say, well, how can it be one without the other? Well, it may be something that's not displeasing to God, but perception can make it look bad. Could I make the church look bad? Yeah, so I probably should refrain from that, even though it may not be displeasing to God. So, will it be pleasing to God? Will it bring reproach upon the church? And then and only then, if I can say those, the correct answer, then I can ask, will it make me happy? After I've asked those other two, answered those other two questions. But society today, we flip that on its head. We ask this question, will it make me happy? If the answer is yes, we stop asking every other question. We don't ask whether or not it will bring reproach upon the church. We don't ask whether or not it's pleasing to God. We say, will it make me happy? Because it makes me feel good and because God wants me to be happy. Okay, and that's where we get confused in this. You look at 2 Corinthians uh, 10 and verse 5. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 5 says that we have casting down all arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing in every thought into captivity to the obedience in Christ. We've got to put everything else away. Bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of of Christ. That's got to be our mindset. That's got to be how we approach things. Why then would people search for truth elsewhere? Well, A, because it feels good. B, because it perhaps fits their lifestyle better. Because if the, the doctrine that they're searching for when you come to religious things fits what they want to do. We see this in, in 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 4, right? It's not uncommon. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, we read there. But according to their own desires, notice, their own desires, what they want, what feels good, what the self wants. They have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, they will turn away their ear from the truth. So it's not not new. It's not new. However, in the last 20 years, 10 years you could say even more so, we've seen a drastic rise in in the desire to please the self. And I think it's gotten us to this point where we are now. And what we need to understand within this concept is the truth, God's truth, is unchanging. It has always been the same. It was the same for the first century church. It's the same for us today. Now, that being said, we have to share said truth with the culture, and we have to do so in love. But the truth is honest. Our goal as Christians should never be, when we go talk about some of the things we're going to talk about tonight, and I'll give you some examples, should never be to be self-righteous because we are hoarders of the truth. We have the truth. I know the truth, and you should know the truth, and I don't really care if I hurt your feelings in the process. That can't be how we are. Now, in fairness, the truth very often hurts some people's feelings. It does. 
But that's just because it's not what they want to hear. We see an example of that in Mark 10, verses 17 through 22, right, with the rich young ruler. And he's talking to Christ, and he says, hey, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And, and he tells him, oh, I've done all those things. And then in verse 21, what does it say there? Christ says, it says, Christ looked upon him and loved him. And then said, go sell everything you have. Take up your cross and follow me. And of course, we know the end of that story. He went away sorrowful, because he had, for he had great possessions. Christ loved it. He loved it. We knew that ahead of time, but the scripture tells us that just in case you were curious. And he told him something he didn't want to hear. The truth is honest. We have to be honest with people, but I have to share said truth and love. Christ wasn't, as far as we can tell, I guess we can't read tone within scripture, but I, I don't see many times in which Christ is very condescending when he talks to people. He shares the truth with them. He does so in love and, and Now it's up to them to accept it. He's not going to force it upon them. He's not going to force it upon us. And we can't force it upon other people. It's our job to share such. So let's look at some of these cultural things. And I think, really, and I said said emotivism, post-truth, those are the the root, if you will. Things within the last 10 years or so have grown out of that. And we've seen it at a greater scale. And why do I bring these things up? Because I think we're starting to see them permeate within... The body, for one, certainly within denominationalism, they permeated very much so. But even a little bit within the body, with our young people somewhat. I do spend an inordinate amount of time with young people in my profession. Okay, and we see this permeating in, even those that are in the faith. That they say, well, how do we, how do we go about handling that? Who am I to make that decision? You know, I don't want to judge anybody. And so they struggle with how to go about Dealing with this. And again, I think we need to be cautious and careful with how we present these things to people and when we talk about these things. We can't eye roll, oh, like these people. We can't do that. But we've got to present the truth. The first one you look at, it's, it's the, this concept, this idea of, of the transgender movement to a certain extent. We've seen that in the last 10, 10 years, maybe. I'm trying to think back to when it originally began. I could have looked into that better. But we've seen it grow vastly. It's on the news regularly. You're seeing this and that, and laws are being passed that affect it in this way and that way. And people will say, you know, I, you know, and I assure you, I'm not here to talk about political things by any stretch. It's not a political thing. It's a moral thing. It's just been turned by the culture into a political thing. We've come to a, a time in our society well, where words that were once easily defined, that were defined by Scripture, we struggle to define them now. Words like woman, man. My entire lifetime, those were pretty cut and dry words. They're harder to define now. Why? Because we live in an era of post-truth. We live in an era where what is it? Well, what do you want it to be? That's the concept that we take with it. Of course, we know as Christians, right, that we have a creator, We know that we have a creator. We read there in Genesis, in the the fourth word of Genesis 1, we are introduced to the creator. The remainder of Genesis and the rest of the Bible go on to show us his power. Within Genesis in the beginning, we see the power of his creation, but we see all the power that he has. And we know that a creator is better than his creation. And it's worth pointing that out. You look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. Let's look at some of these, because again, some of this stuff is going to permeate into... You know, God forbid the church. 
And we need to make sure that we know what the Bible says about these things. First, Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The same creator that made the heavens and the earth. He created me. He created you. Male and female, he created them. In Psalms 100 and verse 3. Know that the Lord is good, that the Lord, he is God. It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. It is he that made us. We we don't get to decide that. We're not given that authority as people. Even if we want to, even if we feel like it. And I can be sympathetic with the fact that some people struggle with this concept. But the fact of the matter is, the truth is the truth. And the truth is, I don't get to make that decision. Psalms 139 and verse 14. I will praise you for I am fearfully fearfully and wonderfully made. I certainly didn't make myself. Who am I made by? Well, we just read it in Genesis 1. Who am I made by? Well, I'm made by God. Marvelous are your works that my soul knows them very well. We are made by a creator. The creator is greater than his creation. And who are we when we really think about it? Because when I sit here and I say a phrase that 20 years ago, if if my grandfather would have heard this phrase, he would have thought, "What, what are you talking about? But if he would have heard the phrase, I'm a, I'm a male trapped in a female's body, or vice versa. What I'm saying there ultimately, when I make a statement like that, is I'm saying God has made a mistake. God has made a mistake in how he made me. And God doesn't make mistakes. He never has. He never will. We're not in a very good position to question his ability to make things. We can read through the book of Genesis, chapter 1, to see the power and the wonder and the might that he has to make things, we're not in a position to question that. To how things are made. How can man who's created from the dust, Genesis 2-7, and woman who's created from man, Genesis 2-21-23, how can they do a better job of deciding who they are than he who created them? They can't. It can't be done. So we need to understand that. We're going to see, these, who, who am I to say who they are and who they aren't, you know, that's how they feel. That's how they feel. They feel that way. They feel very, you know, they feel like they're a man trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a man's body. They say they felt that way their whole life and they just haven't said anything till now. Who am I to tell them they're wrong? Well, I might not be anybody, but God certainly is. And we need to keep that in mind. Glenn. Certainly. No, certainly not. I would agree with that. And you know, I've, I've run into these scenarios, many of you have. Again, we see this more in our culture today. And I've, I've said to someone before, it'd probably be best if I don't run into that person because I'm going to offend them. 
I'm not going to do it intentionally. I'm not going in it with the mindset of, boy, I can't wait to get in their presence. I'm going to make, I'm going to really get under their skin. No, but I'm not going to affirm the behavior. And by not affirming the behavior, I'm, I'm going to offend them. Now, again, the truth is offensive sometimes. It shouldn't be the goal. It shouldn't be why we do it, but it is offensive. Why? Because it doesn't fit into people's box of what they want. And we need to understand that. We don't need to be brash and, and, and rough when we present things, but we do need to understand how it is. Because, again, Christ presented things in ways that offended a lot of people. He didn't do it in an ugly way. He did it in love. He did it because he didn't want to see him burn. If we're being honest, that's why he did. Why would you tell somebody, you know what, you've done all, you've kept all these commandments, let's go back to my example in Mark 10, but one thing you like, go sell everything you have, because Christ, of course, knows his heart, he knows he's, he's too clung to his things. Why would he tell him that? Because his priorities are wrong, and he knows it. Because he's got stuff in his priority list that he puts ahead of Christ, ahead of following God. And it's, it's going to be problematic, it's going to keep him out of heaven. And there's only one other option of somewhere to go. Christ told him that because he loves him. We should make sure that when we approach things as this and the others, that we do so out of love. We do so not because we're self-righteous, not because we're smarter than you, not because I'm going to show you up or make you feel dumb, but because I care enough about you that I'd like you to know the truth. It might hurt your feelings, and I don't want it to, but it's, it may but I'm not going to change the truth and I'm not going to sugarcoat the truth to make it something that it's not. The example that I have with Christ, he never did that. And we have to keep that in mind. <clears throat> the next on the list here that, I, that I've got this evening is gender equality. While we're talking about gender, let's just talk there. I read something recently. You know, it's interesting that for some reason within our culture and society, we have decided that in order to achieve equality, things must be identical. That's how we achieve equality in regards to, to the sexes. Okay, and there was someone I heard, you know, they left their church because they refused to put me in a leadership role. This was a female speaking, of course. Somebody said, and this was not a member of the Lord's church at all, but it said, if you don't want to go to a church that abuses women, then go to a church that ordains women. When women share power, the culture changes. Because we've told ourselves that in order to be equal, we're identical. Okay, and it's worth pointing this out. God values women in the exact same way he values men. 100%. We read that Galatians 3.28, what does it say? Neither Jew nor Greek, neither what? Male nor female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. Neither bond nor free, you're all one in Christ Jesus. He values them the same. They're our soul that he would like to see be in eternity with him. Women are not inferior to men as created beings by God. They're not. They're not inferior to men any more than Christ is inferior to the Father. Any more than me as a citizen of this country is inferior to the President. But there are certain things that Christ has set up within his church, within the home, in which men and women are different. That doesn't change their value. And that's what we have to make sure in a culture that says, hey, when women share power, the culture changes, especially within religious instruction. You look at 2 Timothy, verses 11 through 14. Again, what does the Bible say about this? Because it can't be my opinion. I can't just say, listen, 
think men should just be in charge because that just, that's the way it's always been and it just makes sense. No, what does the Bible say about it? Second, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over man, but be in silence. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Within Christ's church, women are to be submissive to men within leadership roles. If a woman leaves the church, as I gave you in my previous example, because she's not put in a leadership role, what does it say about her faith? It says, as our whole theme is tonight, that it is, it's self-centered. It's not God-centered. It doesn't have anything to do with how he has set up his church. His model doesn't change because society does. Has society changed over time? When it comes to women's rights and women's yes, and many of those things are fantastic. Societally, they're great. But his model for the church, his model for the home, doesn't change just because society does. You say you read, we read that women are to be submissive to their husbands. That doesn't mean that that they're devalued. Doesn't mean they're unimportant. That's the model that Christ set up. Men are no more valuable to the, to the church than women in terms of, again, their value of a soul. Who says, who decided that preaching, that teaching an adult class like this, that leading singing, that public prayer is more important of a responsibility than doing so in a children's class? Who made that decision? The Bible certainly doesn't say such. God's word doesn't say such. Hey, if you lead singing, you're going to be more important than that woman that teaches the children's class. It doesn't say that. We've made that decision as people. I don't mean we in particular, but society, our culture has made that decision. If you're not up in front of everybody, if you're not in a leadership role, if you're not the one making the decisions, our culture tells us you're devalued. They don't care about you. And that's simply not true. It's never been true. It wasn't true within the first century church. It's not, it's not true now. God surely never said such. If someone doesn't meet the requirements, and I use this as an example, if someone doesn't meet the requirements to be president, are they a lesser citizen? We have requirements for how we are to be elders and deacons within the church. The fact that men are to preach, that women, as we just read in 1 Timothy, are to be submissive to men in that regard. Well, if I'm not constitutionally, I'll be honest with you, I'm not qualified to be president at the moment. Am I a worse citizen than our president is? I don't like, think not. You've got people that immigrate to the United States all the time. They're not natural-born U.S. citizens, and they are fantastic citizens. I know numerous ones. They're not any worse because they, well, you weren't born here, so you're not as good of a citizen. Not true. The fact that I don't meet the qualifications doesn't make me wrong. Okay, and you notice my previous quote, when women share power, the culture changes. That was what the, the woman had said. Women who share power won't necessarily change a culture, and think about this, but godly women who respect what the Bible has to say about women's roles within the church, within the home, they change cultures every day. They do. We, we have numerous ones within this church. You no doubt have numerous ones within your home and ones that you know elsewhere. That godly women change cultures every day. They don't have to quote-unquote share power to do it. And we need to keep that in mind. When we think about it and we see these things, pardon me, we see these things permeate through the church over time. Of, hey, you know, it's 
Culture's changing. Women are starting to get in power. We've got to make sure that we get some women in some leadership roles. No, we don't. Not because I don't want them. Not because I, I'm, you know, a mean guy. It's because that's the way that God has set it up. Simple as that. And our last one, and hopefully I'll get through all this, time will permit, because it's obviously a big one, and you could spend an entire class on this. But when you think about this emotivism, this post-truth era, and how this rise and triumph of the human self dictates our culture and how we have to be leery of it, it's, it's abortion. And, of course, that's a lot talked about in current society. And I'll say this. I've mentioned throughout that we need to be careful with how we talk about certain things. And I bring this up here because if you'll allow me, and, and time will permit me, I want to share just a brief story because it's worth mentioning. We do need to be careful sometimes. We talk about abortion a lot as Christians, because we'll see in a moment what the Bible has to say about it. But we need to be, we need to be careful with any sin, really, but this is one that we be careful not to demonize those who have committed it. And I bring this up to say this. If we're sitting here and we say, man, if somebody were to have an abortion, they just got to be the worst, the worst person on the planet. Can't believe that. And this is why I bring that up. Some perspective here, if you'll allow it. Many of you get the emails that I send out every week, every Monday morning. And I wrote one previous, earlier this year. After a friend of mine, they lost their child. Young child. And she, she suddenly passed away. And I went to the funeral. And I was thinking there at that funeral. And it's just reflecting in my email. About how I was thinking throughout that time about heaven. And about all the, all the little children that will be in heaven. And it makes a place that is already wonderfully unimaginable even that much better. And there was another woman who received my emails. I've never met her personally. We, she got added on through a side friend. Whatnot. We've corresponded numerous times before this, but this was the first, uh, this particular instance. And she children remain nameless, obviously. And I'm glad it was in written correspondence. I don't know how well I would have handled the situation face-to-face. She's an older woman. She became a Christian much later in life. From what I can tell. I don't know how long she's been a Christian. I don't think it's been all that long. And she responded to me and she said, you know, I read your email this morning and I respond to you now through tears. Because I thought about, as I was reading it, all the children that would be in heaven and I think about my life before I was in Christ and all the children I've aborted. And, I've won, and I wonder now, will they ask me Why? when I get to heaven. She said, I wanted so bad to tell them how sorry I was. I wanted to tell them that I think about them all the time. And so I think we need to be careful when you hear something like that. You have someone who's repented, no doubt. She's in Christ. She's repented of past sins. But when we say things, and again, we demonize this concept because, again, we, we do feel very passionate about it because it is a serious ordeal. And we say, boy, they've got to be the worst people in the world. You have people that have made those unfortunate decisions. They were in circumstances and they made bad choices. But when we say things like, man, those are just the worst, it, it opens those wounds back up again to someone who's repented of and no doubt been forgiven of. It doesn't change the fact that it was wrong. But we just need to be understanding and how we go about approaching that conversation. Now, that being said, let's discuss it. How have we gotten here? How have we gotten here when it comes to abortion? That is just so widely accepted. You say, well, you could cite Roe v. Wade, okay, 1973. I, I don't necessarily even think it was that, how we've gotten here. Yeah, that legalized it in the United States. 
Think about our society as a whole, how much we've just separated sex from marriage. The sexual revolution that came up in an earlier time period up until now. Think about this for a moment. You know, sex is casual. It's separated from the marriage bond. You don't have to know anything about the plot of this movie. You never have to have seen the trailer. Nothing of the sort. But if I tell you there's a title of a movie called The 40-Year-Old Virgin, you know it's a comedy. Because that's what our culture's told us. The fact that somebody could be, an unmarried man could be 40 years old and be a virgin, hilarious. It's embarrassing. What an unfulfilled life. That's what our culture has told us. With a culture such as that, there's no doubt that we're going to have abortion on demand. I'm looking for the things that makes me happy. Sex makes me happy. It's casual. It's fun. It's not tied to anything. It's not tied to any marriage bond. It's not tied to anything of that sort. It's casual and it's fun. The consequences of it, though, mm, not so much fun. So, hey, there's a solution to that problem. And it's gotten us to where we are. The Bible, of course, is quite clear about this. It's quite clear about the topics of sex and marriage and abortion. You look in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1-4. through 4. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is, good, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render his wife the affection due to her, and likewise also the wife to her husband, and the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You go down to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4. Marriage is honorable among all, the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. We understand that, that the sex that God created is meant for the marriage bond. It's meant for no other time than that. Our culture will tell us otherwise. Our culture will tell us everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing it. It's common. Abstinence is laughable. That's not something that people actually do. Not anymore. We've moved on. That's old school. That's what they're going to tell us. That's what the culture is going to tell us. That's not what the Bible tells us. It's not. It never has been. And the truth of that word is unchanging. It's been unchanging. It always will be unchanging. We look at the concepts, of course, abortion. And again, you could spend a lot more than the seven minutes I got talking about it. And Luke 1, 41, right, when Mary goes and, and you, you, we read that the babe, John the Baptist there, leapt in the womb. You've got a formed fetus, child, what have you, leaps in the womb. In Jeremiah 1, 5, it says, before I, this is God speaking here, before I formed you in the womb, I formed you. God, God made that. He created. Because he is the creator of life. In Proverbs 6.17, of course, we, we see that God hates the hands that shed innocent blood. And that's what that is. And again, people are going to use emotion and feelings for this. They're going to they're find exceptions. And we see this with our young people. I've seen it more and more. They say, well, you know, abortion is bad. But there's got to be exceptions to the rule. There's got to be exceptions because, you know, there are certain circumstances. There are certain circumstances where certainly it would be okay. And there's a long list of them. You know, a few people, you'll say, well, that's not exactly a human life yet. That's exception number one. 
It's not exactly, it's not a baby, it's a fetus, or it's a zygote, or it's whatever you want to call it. Okay, but and here's the fact of the matter. Let's take, let's take emotion and feeling out of it. Well, I can't see it, so it's not a human life. Okay? There's two questions to be asked. Is it living or is it dead? Once you have a fertilized egg, is it living or dead? Well, it's certainly living, because if it's left alone to its own natural processes, it'll continue to grow and mature. Okay? Is it human life or not? Well, we know that everything is made of its own kind. And two humans created a new living unit, we'll call it that for the sake of, well, then what else could it be other than human life? Physically can't be anything else. All right, we see, well, you know, rape, that's a big one. Terrible, terrible thing, terrible thing. And people want to put us in a box, the culture does. Well, if you don't think that a woman should be able to have an abortion after rape, then you're just okay with rape. No, that's not the binary choice. It's disgusting, it's vile, it's sinful on so many levels. But the fact of the matter is, that's the only instance, too, in which it's quote-unquote unfair. woman's body was hijacked, and she had no say-so in it. You're right. It's unfair. Absolutely unfair. It's unfair, too, when a woman, a man, whoever, body's hijacked with cancer. No say-so in that. They didn't pick it. They didn't choose it. And you say, well, yeah, but they're doing what they can to fight it. Okay. But what if I said, hey, I got a cure for cancer. If you kill that person over there, it will beat your cancer. Is that ethical? No, it's not. So to say, well, it's unfair. It is. It is unfair. It doesn't change the fact that we're talking about a human life here. Formed by God. Formed by God. The life and health of the mother. This is a good one. Well, you know, the mother's life is in danger. There is no instance in the history of time in which a mother's life has been in danger and the only way she can survive is to kill that baby. That's it. It's the only option. Got to kill it right now. Now you may say, hey, there are some health complications here. And we're going to need to get that baby out in order to save your life. And, and we're going to do the best we can to save that baby also. But it's possible, due to its development, that it may die. But that's not abortion. We're not, we're not killing a baby for that. Never do I have to go in and say, like, I just got to kill it. The only way you live. No. I can try to save both. I certainly can We need to understand that in the end here, abortion, like the previous other sins, they come from the idea of emotivism. They come from this era of post-truth. They come from 1 John 2.6, or 2.16, rather. Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Every one of those sins is about me. I, it will feel good to me, lust of the flesh. I see it and I want it. Lust of the eyes, it will make me look good, pride of life. Me, 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 me. It's the rise and triumph of the human self. That's what our culture has told us. It's not what Christianity tells us. Because Christianity says, more of him, less of me. Luke 9.23 says we have to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. I've got to deny myself. I've got to put on Christ. In a culture that says, what is going to make me happy, we have to ask and we have to teach our children What is going to make God happy? Because it's him that I focus on, not not me, not what I want. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. His word sanctifies us. It's truth. Sanctification, it makes us holy. His truth makes us holy. That's the only thing. Not our feelings, 
not what we desire to have happen, not what we want to be true, just what is true. That's it. That's all it is. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free, John 8, 32. It makes us free because we know what it is. We don't have to guess. It's not squishy, well, you know, I feel this way and you feel that way. So one of you is right. We don't know. We know what the truth is. So it frees us of having to play the guessing game. I know what God wants of me. I know what he wants for my life. I know how he wants me to act. I know what he condones and doesn't condone. And at the end of the day, I have to ask this question. Read in Matthew 7, 21, and I'm almost finished. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. And if I'm going to ask those questions in that hierarchy of thinking, God, church, self, will it be pleasing to God? Well, I've got to know what is, what is his will. His will in 1 Timothy 2, 4, is he desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's God's will. All men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So when I'm going to do something, when I'm going to agree with something, is it that? That's what he wills for us. Not what I want. And if anything goes against that, then it's not his will. Will it be pleasing to God? Will it bring reproach from the church? And then and only then, will it make me happy? We can't do that in reverse order. Lord willing, next week we'll talk about worship, how the culture has affected that, where we're at on those things, uh, and then as we strive towards heaven, how the culture affects that and changes that. Thank you for your time and attention. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.